thinkers and leaders viewed the world and our place in it. Ancient documents, previously held to be divine biblical truth for centuries, were now seen as only primitive superstitions, comforting illusions that had nothing to do with reality. Hard sciences took the place formerly held by philosophy and their realms of study. That which can be seen, touched, and measured became the only area of study with any claim on truth. Men and women were no longer seen as being created in the image of God, or even created at all. Humans were like all life on Earth, merely advanced animals evolved through meaningless, purposeless chance. And God became merely a figment of childish wishes, something intelligent adults outgrew, like an infant's nursery. It was into this world that Clive Staples Lewis was born in 1898, and it was here that he was raised and educated. He quickly became one of its more vocal adherents. As a young man, he wrote to a friend, I believe in no religion. There is absolutely no proof for any of them. And from a philosophical standpoint, Christianity is not even the best. All religions, that is all mythologies to give them a proper name, are merely man's inventions. In 1925, after graduating with highest honors from Oxford with degrees in philosophy and literature, Lewis was invited to join the faculty. Before long, he became close friends with the company of believers, chief among them, J.R.R. Tolkien. Much to Lewis's surprise, it was they who began to influence him rather than the reverse. Through these friends, Lewis came to see Christianity as intellectually credible, and despite his great desire to simply be left alone by God, his great change gradually began to take place. About his conversion, Lewis wrote, in the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. Well, good evening. Welcome. Um, I'm kind of curious, how many, how many of you here would say that, that you're, you're familiar with the name C.S. Lewis? Like, like it rings a bell? Okay, I'm just kind of curious. How many of you would say you've, you've read, say, maybe some of his more popular um, fictional works, the Chronicles of Narnia, Space Trilogy? I'm just curious to see kind of where, where some of this is. Okay. How many of you would say you've read um, some of his uh, nonfiction works like uh, Mere Christianity, A Grief Observed, The Great Divorce, some of those books? Okay, good. Um, well, what, what we're going to do is we're, we're spending three weeks here, these, these last three weeks. You guys, I, I can hardly believe this, but we only have three more weeks, and then we break for kind of a Christmas break, and, um, and then we'll pick up again in January. So the, the, these last three weeks, we're going to be spent looking at the life of C.S. Lewis, and some of his ideas that, that are, I think, extremely engaging, extremely challenging for us. The reason we're doing that is a couple reasons. One is, um, it's just kind of timely. Uh, two weeks from tomorrow is the 22nd, I think. November 22nd marks the 50th anniversary of C.S. Lewis's death. And if the, if the date kind of sounds familiar, November 22nd, 1963, was, was the same day that President uh, John F. Kennedy was assassinated. And uh, Kennedy and Lewis died within hours of one another. Um, there's, there's an interesting, uh, great kind of fictional post-death dialogue. That's a, a really good short book that I, I gave uh, to you on the back of your handout. There's a couple different suggested readings. And, and one of those is it's this really fun 
dialogue. Um, three guys actually died within hours of each other on that exact same day. Uh, Kennedy, Lewis, and then another guy named Aldous Huxley, who's kind of an Eastern pantheist. And um, the author does this really interesting, what would happen if these guys met after life? Like, what would the conversation go like? Because all of them believed that life was not the end, but one was an Eastern pantheist, one was a Christian theist, and one was kind of a sort of secularist, all good people go to heaven. Well, man, what kind of conversation would they have? So there's some, there's some good reads there. But So we're looking at it for that reason, but, but personally, I would say um, Lewis has had an enormous just personal impact on, on my life. Um, I, I would say, aside from my family, my mom, my dad, my parents, aside from them, Lewis has had the biggest impact on my, my thinking, my approach to life, my understanding of, of, of God, of suffering, of um, happiness, um, humanity, all these different things, than I would say any other writer or, or influencer in my life. And I want to just encourage you during these next three weeks, whether you are, you know, you're just kind of exploring the whole faith thing or whether you've made that commitment to Christ, I think Lewis can really challenge you. Lewis, Lewis challenges us to um, question our assumptions, you know, the things that we kind of just walk in the door with that we never question. He, he goes after some of those. He also comes after us with imagination. If you've read some of his stories, this is a guy, he uses humor, he uses the imagination. He thinks that's a powerful, powerful tool for coming to truth. And so he engages kind of the whole person. He's this bright guy, but he goes after the, he's got a heart that's on fire and he goes after the imagination and, he, and he's a good thinker. So in so many ways, I think he can challenge all of us. So over these next three weeks, I, I, I think it'll happen. Here's, here's kind of how I want to uh, do this. The hardest part is figuring what not to say because there's like so much that I would love to talk about with Lewis. Um, but today I want to talk about just a little bit about him coming to faith. This is a guy who lived half of his life. He died one week before his 65th birthday. And um, he lived half of his life as, as, a, as an atheist. And not by default, he had come to a solid conclusion of atheism. And then the second half of his life, it's this radical worldview shift. And, um, and so tonight I want to look a little bit at that. <clears throat> and specifically, um, you know, he had a lot of, he was an apologist. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit about what that means here in a couple minutes. But he, he presented arguments, ideas, evidence for, for why he thought it was reasonable to give one's total life over to Jesus. And one of the ones that really resonated with him, and it was kind of different from a lot of guys. A lot of other people weren't, weren't talking about this. And this is kind of a new thought is he, he had this particular idea of desire that, that we're going to drill down into tonight. Next week, I want to look at um, how Lewis, as he read scripture... And, you know, Lewis was like a really good psychologist, like he understood the human psyche. He understood how temptation worked in the soul. So we're going to talk about heaven and hell and temptation and how that kind of plays out. And then the third week, I want to look at, at some of Lewis's um, fictional writings, specifically the world of Narnia and uh, maybe the greatest fictional character that has ever been created, right? Aslan, the great lion. And so we'll look at that on week three as we go here. Um, as I mentioned earlier, C.S. Lewis died in uh, 1963, the city of Oxford, England, uh, just northwest of, of London. And um, four, four days later, his friends, his family gathered at the Holy Trinity Church at Hedgerton Quarry to, to mourn his death. 
The service of his funeral began with the quote of John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life, saith the Lord. After the service, the group walked slowly and quietly out outside into the cold, clean air, and they watched his casket being taken from the church over to the churchyard for, for burial. The New York Times, in uh, November 25th of 63, amid all tons of articles on the assassination of the president, announced in a headline, C.S. Lewis, dead, author, critic, 64. And under, under uh, a photo and in a several-column article, the Times went on to, um, to speak about, about his uh, a prolific life. It, it mentioned his reputation as a brilliant scholar, reviewed some of his both scholarly as well as very popular works um, that had already sold by this point 63 millions of copies, and of course are still in print today, and noted that his success as a writer changed at this halfway point um, when, when he switched worldviews from an atheist to a follower of Christ. They said, um, th this is when he, he sort of he came into his own. This is when he made this big impact, when he became a believer. And so Lewis, who is this celebrated um, instructor, a don uh, at, at Oxford, and then later a professor at Cambridge, <coughs> um, is perhaps the 20th century's most prominent um, uh, preacher um, who, who is speaking about what it means to have faith in Christ, but based on, based on solid reason. It's really interesting, during, during World War II in Britain, this, now this was like during one of the lowest points in Britain. Britain is being attacked, you know, Germany's bombing London. People don't know if they're going to be alive tomorrow. And so during one of the darkest hours of London, uh, the, the British government approaches Lewis and says, would you do some, some talks on the BBC? People need hope. And so Lewis puts together these talks, and he gives these, these various um, talks, um, so much so that his, uh, his voice was recognizable second only to Churchill during the war because it was known it was known by the guy in the bar listening to it to the person at home and so he had this uh, amazing appeal and and he had a huge appeal in America uh, most Brits at the time didn't use humor uh, most Brits thought it was kind of beneath them to try to entertain their audience and Lewis wasn't like that he was very very different so he was acceptable over there and um, had a huge following here in the States as well um, now, later, these talks that were given on the BBC, Lewis put them together, he compiled them, and, and he, cre he, he put them into the book, Mere Christianity. So what we have is the book of Mere Christianity were these talks given over the radio. And that's why, if you read it, you'll find there's a lot of martial language, a lot of uh, military war language in there, because he was, he was appealing to the times, the things going on, these people. And let me just say, if I could, if I could like, I don't know, hold... Maybe I was going to, I probably shouldn't say a gun against your head. If I could force everyone to read one book besides the Bible, it would be mere Christianity. It, it, it is by far, I think, the most impactful book that, that I've come across outside of Scripture. So um, you must read it, or shame on you if you do not. So go out and buy it. A um, few years later, Time Magazine described C.S. Lewis as the most influential spokesperson in that century in the 20th century for, for what they call the spiritual worldview, meaning Christianity. 
Um, but what's more amazing is, is Lewis's ability to just talk about almost anything. And, and even as an author, you know, most authors write, they write in one genre. You know, they, they do fiction, or they do poetry, or they do prose, whatever. This is a guy, these are the kinds of books that he wrote. Um, he wrote uh, apologetics, and again, we'll talk about that in a second here. But he also wrote on theology and philosophy. He wrote science fiction and fantasy. He wrote children's literature and poetry. He wrote literary theory and aesthetic history. Christian allegory and spiritual autobiography. He wrote fictional letters devotional meditations, on and on. So many different kinds. And we'll talk a little bit more as we go here over these few weeks about some of those and just the significance of them. <clears throat> and so much more could be told about Lewis, you know, again, that we'll get to. But I want to look for a minute at, at this whole idea of him coming to faith in Christ. Um, he grew up in a, like, a somewhat religious home, you know, kind of nominal, um, in Ireland. You probably heard in the in the video we watched kind of the bagpipes, you know, that was, that was the Irish background. Uh, his father was Welsh, and, and, you know, he grew up in this home, and, and uh, he had a fairly happy childhood until nine years old when his, his mother died of cancer, and um, his whole life was shattered. He, he talks about in his book, Surprised by Joy, and his father, who didn't have a lot of emotional intelligence, didn't know how to handle this young boy or his older brother, Warney, who was a couple years older, took Lewis, a nine-year-old, and shipped him off to England, another country, into a boarding school because he just couldn't, he couldn't handle it. And, and Lewis said that those are the worst five years of his life. If you know anything about the English boarding school system, uh, it, it, it's, it was awful, absolutely hideous. And he wrote his father many times begging him to come home, to have some other way uh, to learn. And um, after, after years, when he's about 15, his father agrees. And so he says, okay, I'll hire you a private tutor. And he hires Kirkpatrick was his name. Now, Kirkpatrick had been Lewis's father's tutor as well. And Lewis is an atheist by this point. He's like a teenager. He doesn't believe in God. He's quite sure of that. Kirkpatrick is an atheist as well. And Kirkpatrick is obsessively rational in his thinking, very, very clear thinking. Lewis tells a story when he first met him. It was in Surrey, and he thought, you know, adults have, like, small talk, and he was 15, he thought, I kind of want to be an adult, so he, when he first met him, uh, he didn't like small talk, but he thought, well, that's what adults do. So he said, oh, it's, it's much more wild here in Surrey than I thought it would be. And Kirkpatrick said, what do you, on what do you base that? What did you mean by wild? Why did you think Surrey was, and he just fired all these questions, and Lewis said he realized I didn't even know what wild was, let alone what I was talking about. Now, most kids would be like crushed by that. Lewis came alive. He was like, this is awesome. This guy's a good thinker. I can become like him. And so he sat underneath Kirkpatrick. And, and Lewis had a nickname for everybody. He called him the old knock. Um, his brother Warren, he called Warren. You know, uh, Lewis goes by Jack. The story is that when he was like three years old, he, three or four, he walked up to his mom and dad and he said, um, from now on, because his name was Clive Staples, you know, and he said, from now on, my name is Jack. You know, can you imagine that? <laughs> kind of a pretentious little three or four-year-old. Um, and so he was, you know, he went by Jack his whole life. And everyone he knew, he had a nickname for. And he was kind of one of these guys. And so he sat underneath the teaching of the old knock, or Kirkpatrick, and um, he just, Kirkpatrick honed his thinking really, really well. And what's kind of ironic, it's kind of cool, he, he, he helped Lewis be a rational, clear thinker, not letting sloppy thinking be okay. 
The irony is that when, when, when Lewis became a believer, he used that kind of thinking to make the impact on the world in such a significant way that it's still impacting us 50 years later and will continue on around the world. Well, with Kirkpatrick, um, he, he helps him get into um, Oxford. And if you're, if you're anything like, one thing, this is one thing I love about Lewis. Lewis was like awful at math, apparently. Like he couldn't pass what's the equivalent of the SATs in England because of the math portion. But he had signed up voluntarily for World War I. And when he came back, people who, who, who had been in the war, they kind of waved at, you know, don't worry about it. So he got in, which I love that because I, I don't like math very well. So, um, but um, as a student of Oxford, in his areas, he was absolutely brilliant. He won what's called a triple first. This is the highest honors in three areas of study, something that is rarely, rarely ever achieved at Oxford. And after graduating from, under, uh, from his undergrad, he, he is so well received there um, that they ask him immediately to come on as faculty, as staff. And so he comes on as faculty there. He teaches there for 30 years. First, he teaches philosophy and then the uh, English language and literature. Last 10 years of his life. And what's really interesting, um, we'll talk about this kind of as we go, but uh, because Lewis didn't kind of fall in line with modernism and a lot of those approaches he didn't kind of fall in line with only speaking to the, you know, the higher echelon, the academics, he spoke to the populace. Oxford kind of frowned on that. They thought, well, that reflects poorly on us. So they never gave him a chair, meaning a full professorship. Um, finally, he was asked to come to Cambridge and he was given the chair in uh, medieval and Renaissance literature. Interestingly, about 10 years ago, Oxford came out and apologized for it, you know, for how that they had, how they had treated him. But at, at, at both schools, whatever role he was in, he was extremely popular. Um, this was the day when, when you went to college, you didn't have to go to lectures. You would, you would you know, have the one-on-one tutor time and that sort of stuff, read the books. His lecture halls were packed to standing room only. He was the president of the Socratic Club. The Socratic Club is where they would bring one Christian up, one atheist up, and they would debate and present papers. And then the president, Lewis, would get up, and after a Christian, he would get, and he would just kind of tear apart you know, the atheist ideas. He was extremely sharp thinker and people didn't know quite what to make of this guy <clears throat> but before becoming a christian um he's at oxford he's a professor there or a tutor at this time is what they call it and it's it's while he's there that he finds himself surrounded by christians both in his friends guys like J.R. tolkien and barfield and all these others you know solid solid believers but also in his books like he said, my favorite books, it bugged me because they were all Christians. You know, so he would read guys like G.K. Chesterton um, and guys like uh, George MacDonald. And he, and he said there was something thick about the writing. Now, I kind of, okay, whatever, they're a believer. I'll, I'll kind of put that over there. But man, there was something that just grabbed me in the writing. Years later, in his book, Surprised by Joy, his autobiography, he wrote this. This is so great. Writing back about being an atheist and reading, you know, reading Christian stuff. He said, in reading Chesterton, <clears throat> as in reading MacDonald, I did not know what I was letting myself in for. A young man who wishes to remain a sound atheist cannot be too careful in his reading. <laughs> he says, there are traps everywhere. Bibles laid open, millions of surprises, as Herbert says, fine nets and, str and stratagems. Here's kind of the humor in him. He says, God is, if I may say it, very unscrupulous. <laughs> you know, there's traps all over. The world is laden 
with this whole, this, the traps where God the hunter is after you. He talked about this kind of idea. And so tonight what I want to do is I want to talk a little bit about after Lewis came to faith, one of the unique apologetics, now let me explain what that word is here first. The word apologize, it doesn't, it doesn't come from our English word meaning like to apologize for something like saying I'm sorry. Apologetics comes from the old, there's an old, old Greek word that's used like in the New Testament and stuff, apologia. And apologia, like if you turn to the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter wrote a book, uh, and in chapter 3, verse 15, he encourages believers and he says, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. Do it with gentleness and respect, he says. But that, what we translate, give an answer or give a rational defense, depending on your translation, that's that word apologia. Always be prepared to give a rational defense or an apologia for the hope that you have in Christ. Okay? And so the word apologetics is the idea of giving an answer for something, giving reasons for why you believe something to be true. And so, you know, in apologetics, there's lots of, and you guys have probably, you know, if you hear about like arguments for the existence of God, you know, people say like, well, okay, there's an argument from design, right? There's a design of the world, so you go back to, okay, there's a designer. Or, um, you, know, you know, the cosmological argument, or the moral, there's a moral law, so there must be a moral lawgiver. You start from something and you move backwards. Well, Lewis had this idea. Um, Lewis had this word, and he used a German word because he didn't really like a lot of the English words, and he thought they're all kind of, they're not quite, you know, catching the idea, but there's a German word, Seinsucht. And it means, it means like joy, but it's like longing and joy combined together. It's longing for something. It's like finding something, and it's, oh, it's really great, and it's awesome, and, and you love it, but it's like you're, there's still something else. You kind of can't, didn't quite get it all sort of thing. And so he uses words like joy or desire or longing kind of to get to it. So Lewis makes an argument for God, an apologetic. It's, a, it's an argument from desire. That's the data he's starting with, the desire that we have. And so here's kind of what he says. He says, okay, I listened to Christians for a long time before I came one. And he said, here's, as I can make sense of it, this, this, is, the, this is the Bible's thesis, okay? So if the Bible's thesis is that we were made for God, you know, made, I mean, really made for him, like, like Juliet was made for Romeo, Okay? If that's true, if we were made for God, same way that Juliet was made for Romeo kind of thing, like, like he's our highest good, he's what we were made to fit with, if that's true, um, but we're alienated from him, okay, then our desire, a couple of things are going to be true about this. The first thing he said is... Um, this desire is going to be already in us. Like, we don't have to create it. It's going to be in there already because we were made for him, but, like, we're estranged. We're in a far distant land kind of thing. We're going we're gonna to have this longing, this pang, this wish, you know. This desire is going to already be there in our lives. He said, but it's not going to be attached to God yet necessarily because we don't even necessarily know who, you know. I don't know what I desire, but I desire something. And there's going to be rivals. There's going to be counterfeits. I could attach that desire to something wrongly because if there is a God and he's that big, that means I have a hole that big in me. And so I'm going to be like desperately trying to fulfill it kind of thing. 
He says, so if, if the Christian thesis is true, then as I think about my desire for God, it's going to be there already, but it's not going to be attached to him, and it's going to be like ravenous, okay? Potentially getting counterfeits in some way. So think about our experience. Think about your own experience of desire or longing, the sign soup, this joy, but wanting more kind of thing. We long, Lewis says, for some unnamed kind of numinous thing that, that's, that's beyond anything we've ever experienced. And we all strongly desire something that we just can't quite find in this world. Okay, well, you might say, okay, Lewis, but sure, that's just because you're unhappy, right? I mean, you want something you haven't had because you just haven't had enough. Um, you're poor, you're uneducated, you just need to, that's why people long for things because they just haven't had their needs met. Lewis says, no, 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 you, you're not understanding. It's precisely when you have the best things that you experience this longing, this joy. It's, it's when you have everything that life has to offer. It's when you've got it all. It's the best. It's the educated. It's the wealthy. They feel it may be strongest because they've gotten everything. They've assumingly filled the hole in their life. You know, the, uh, the biblical author Solomon kind of falls into this category, right? I've tried this. I've tried that. I've tried that. It's precisely then that you're most keenly aware of this desire for something beyond and so maybe you've sensed it, just as you think about it in your life. You know, maybe you've sensed it as you've listened. You ever like listen to a piece of music, a song, and there's just something there? Like it's 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 ecstatic in the sense of ecstasy means taking you out of yourself. It's like you're kind of out of not not like out of your mind kind of thing, but it just there's something about it there. Maybe it's when you first fell in love, you know, and you can remember back to just kind kind of those feelings, kind of those thoughts that you had. Maybe it's when you first took up a hobby, when you first took up a sport, when you first thought about some career that, oh man, I want to go toward that. You were passionate. There was something about it. Maybe it's just sitting outside on a rock by a mountain trail or, by, or near a lake, and there's just something magical, like inviting. You, you feel like you're in it. You're not just on the outside kind of thing. Somehow you're a piece of it. But then, as Lewis says, he says, the vision dies away as the music ends or as the landscape loses its celestial light. And for a few minutes, we have had the illusion of belonging to that world, like we were in it, we were a part of it. But now we wake to find that it is no such thing. We have been mere spectators. We realize we're kind of on the outside. It's that idea that it's like you see something and you reach for it and you... And you but it's like you just you can't quite get what you thought you were going to get. The, the full joy, the full pleasure, fulfillment just isn't there like you anticipated this side of reaching out <clears throat> to grasp. And for, but, but, but for that moment, the beauty that you got in the music or the art or the relationship or whatever it might be, it, it made you feel like you were on the inside of the door of that world. You belonged to the world. But then you wake up and you realize, I'm still on the outside of the door. And at best, I'm looking through a little keyhole into it. But I'm, I'm on the outside. I'm knocking still. I'm still seeking. And see, here's the danger. Lewis says in his book, Weight of Glory, which is a sermon he preached, short book. He says, the books 
or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust ourselves to them. It was not in them, he says. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing, desire, joy, sign soup. That's what came out. Now, you might have been wondering this whole time and hopefully not completely not paying attention, why in the world are there signs on the stage, right? Um, I don't know. I just thought it'd be kind of fun. I wanted to... No. The reason there's signs on the stage is Lewis said all those things in your life, like the music, the art, the relationships, the job, the hobby, the vacations, I mean, whatever it is, you know, the things that are, they're beautiful, they're fulfilling, they're like this, they're like signposts, and they're great. I mean, there's a word on them, there's a picture on them, so it's useful, but signs point to something beyond them, right? They point to the road itself, or maybe they point to something further down the road, some object that's there, um, but the signs themselves are not it. There's something past the signs. And Lewis says this about life. He says, all the things that have ever deeply possessed your soul have been but hints of it. He's meaning your desire for God. Tantalizing glimpses, promising, I'm sorry, promises never quite fulfilled Echoes that die away just as they're caught in your ear. But if you should really become, I'm sorry, but if it should really become manifest, if there ever came an echo that did not die away, but swelled into the sound itself, you would know it. Beyond all possibility of doubt, you would say, here at last is the thing I was made for. The thing we desired before we met our wives or made our friends or chose our work and which we shall still desire on our deaths bed, on our deathbeds, when the mind no longer knows wife or friend or work. While we are, this is. And if we lose this, he said, we lose all. This is everything. If you let this get snowed under, and this is Lewis's great warning to us, and not just to the seeker, to everyone. If you let this get snowed under, or, or, or numb, he said, you will lose everything, everything that you were made for. And if you get this, you have no idea what you're in for. See, there's a clue to the meaning of life, Lewis says, in our experience of desire. Okay, now here could be an objection. You might hear that and you say, okay, so maybe, okay, maybe there is this universal desire for something that can't be had in this world. It's something beyond all the experiences that, that we, we go after. Um, but, like, how in the world does my desire for that connect to whether or not God really exists, right? I could desire lots of things. It doesn't mean they exist. So what is, what's the connection there? Well, let me give you kind of a more formal way of, of, of teasing out how Lewis talks about this idea of desire. He says, think about it this way. He says, um, every natural desire you have, now here's what natural means. Natural means uh, you don't want it because of an advertisement, okay? <laughs> um, I want, you know, the newest Nike shoes because I watched an advertisement, or you know, I want to fly like Superman because of my culture. It's kind of a culturally conditioned thing, okay? A natural desire, he says, isn't something that's culturally conditioned. It's universal, and, and it's natural, okay? 
society doesn't kind of make, make me want it. Every natural desire that we find in ourselves, there is a corresponding thing which will meet that desire. Think about it this way. Imagine, imagine you got in a spaceship and you traveled to a distant planet and you met, you met a race of beings, okay? We'll, we'll call them, since we're talking about Lewis, one of his friends, you know, Ents, okay? You, met, you meet these Ents. And they're, they're all male Ents. Okay? There's no female Ents there, not, and there never were. But imagine that all the male Ents keep falling in love. You know, all the Romeo Ents keep falling in love, but there's no Juliet Ents, right? Wouldn't that be odd? That'd be very odd if there weren't any female ends and there never were any, but they have this natural desire. Lewis puts it this way. Creatures who are born with desires, I'm sorry, let me start over. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hungry, well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire, well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. All these pleasures, they're like the signs. They're pointing past themselves. They're to be enjoyed and used, and they're useful, but they're pointing beyond themselves to something else. But of course, we don't always see good pleasures in life like road signs, pointing past themselves to that ultimate good to God. So actually, Lewis tells us that, that there are three ways, three ways to respond to this reality that you live your life and you say, you know what, I had a relationship and it didn't go well. I wanted this, you know, car and I thought it would fulfill me and it you know, wasn't you know, the best thing or, you know, whatever it was you were going for and you're kind of, your hopes are a little dashed. You're kind of like, yeah, just, it didn't quite, quite do it for me. He says, there are three responses that we all have as we think about that. Um, the first one is, is to blame the, the thing. It was the wrong car, the wrong wife, the wrong vacation, the wrong whatever. Um, I just need the right one, okay? Um, and in this case, I kind of become, I become addictive. I become an addict because I just look for the next one. And so I go traipsing around. This one doesn't work and I discard it and I find another one. That one doesn't work and I discard it and I find another one. And my thinking is sort of like this. If I just tried, you know, a different woman or had more expensive clothes or went on more exotic vacations or, you know, got the promotion or got the raise, I would finally catch that mysterious something, you know, that I'm just, I'm always kind of like, longing, desiring for. And so this approach to, to good things sends me on this ongoing search for novelty, thinking that if I just got the right one. Lewis writes this in Mere Christianity. He says, most of the bored, discontented people in the world are of this type. They spend their whole lives trotting from spouse to spouse, from con uh, continent to continent, from hobby to hobby, always thinking that the latest is the real thing at last, and always disappointed. Um, see, once I have recognition, once I have reputation, once I have relationship, whatever it is, fill in the blank, then I'll be happy. Then I'll be filled up. Um, there's this, I love this uh, line, Vanity Fair 
had an article in, in which the uh, rock star Madonna was, was asked about her life. This is a person who has kind of reached it all. I mean, she has had so much success for such a long, from the early 80s to now such a long period of time. And she was interviewed about that place of desire, accomplishment. And these are her words in this Vanity Fair interview. She said, I have an iron will. And all of my will has always been to conquer, this is really interesting, a horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and I think I'm me mediocre and uninteresting. Again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being just mediocre. And that is always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended and it probably never will. See, that's the addiction model. That's if you, if you have stuff in your life, good things, good things, and when they don't meet your needs, you can go this route of saying, it's the wrong thing. I need to keep going. One day I'll find it here, this side of eternity. And you'll become an absolute addict for whatever it might be. It could be an addict with family, with relationships. It could be an addict with success and reputation. It doesn't matter what it is. You will become an absolute addict and a horror to yourself and a horror to everyone who knows you. Jesus said this, Matthew 16, 24 through 26. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone wants to come after me, become one of my followers, then let him deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. Um, if one tries to hold on to the good things, they vanish. I mean, if hold on to in the sense of make it your all, if you try to get your joy out of all the things in your life that, that, that are good, that are wonderful things, you'll kill them, you'll squeeze them to death. And, and they will end up crushing you. Or if you try to kind of greedily reproduce it, oh, that was such a good, you know, that was, man, that was a great experience. I need to kind of recreate that feeling. Um, it'll never come. Jesus' the whole point here is that joy, joy comes when we forget it, when we stop seeking it and seek God. Remember um, Jesus' statement in, in, in Matthew 6? He says, he's speaking to his Jewish followers, and he says, the Gentiles strive after all these things, all the good things in life, all these signs, and they go after them. They strive after them with all their heart. And indeed, your heavenly Father, he knows you need them, he says. But strive first for the kingdom of God, God's righteousness. And he says, and all these, all these things, you'll get them, right? Aim for heaven, and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim for earth, and you'll miss both earth, earth and heaven. Is the idea. Now, a second response that, that you can have uh, when things don't meet your need is you can kind of say, well, it's all a fraud, it's all a scam, and I'm going to harden myself and become a cynic. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not addicted. I don't just blame the thing and find another thing. I say it's all a fraud, and I harden myself. And so if I get, if I get dumped by a person you know, that I loved before, well, I just say, well, forget you know, the whole opposite sex. I don't, I don't care at all. I become cynical, empty. I stop believing in beauty overall. 
because it'll crush me. I'll get disappointed, so I just won't desire. I'll kill desire. That way, I'll never get hurt. Well, you know, that's true. If, if, if you harden yourself, you will never get hurt in that way. Um, John Ortberg has this great statement that I love. He says, it's true that a slab of cement doesn't have to worry about weeds, but it will also never be a garden. Isn't that good? Um, what if God intended us to be more like gardens than cement, though, with this whole thing of desire? Um, blaming the things themselves doesn't work. Blaming the world for holding out on me doesn't work. Lewis suggests there's only one way that it will ever work. You, there's only one way you will ever be happy. You will ever have joy in your entire life. And that is to see all those things, all the good things in your life, as hints, echoes, shadows, trail signs, all of them pointing to something besides themselves. They're not bad. They're not evil. You don't have to discard them. You don't have to just jump to the next one thinking, finally, there's the perfect one out there. Understand them for what they are. See, only this third view lets you really live in a sense, a sense of gratitude, a sense of saying, okay, whatever happens, I'm okay with it. Um, at night times, uh, my kids and I were reading the, uh, the book, uh, The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom. We just started that word, I don't know, like a third of the way through, and so we usually do like a half a chapter a night kind of thing. And if you know anything about the hiding place, it's this Austrian family who, during World War II, they're living in uh, German-occupied Austria, and they, have, and they decide to start hiding Jews in their home. And uh, Corey, the daughter in the home, is deathly afraid. She's worried. And... This, this whole thing of, you know, she, she enters a life where she's taken into a camp and slowly watches her father and sister waste away and die and loses everything. All the sign, all the road signs are gone, everything that she's loved. She had this great statement as an old woman toward the end of her life. She said, I've learned that we must hold everything loosely because when I grip it tightly, it hurts when the father pulls my fingers loose to take it from me. See, she got it, didn't she? Hold everything loosely, why? Because it'll all be taken eventually. And if I squeeze, it just hurts more when it's ripped out of my hand. Let me give you one last warning by Lewis about desire, about this, this God-built desire inside of us. Many of us, many of us, uh, and kind of for good reason, um, fear to receive and accept the real thing, the very real thing that we're desiring. Um, oftentimes, many of us play like, like, like we're seekers. Oh, I'm seeking truth. I, you know, I'm seeking God on this. You know, I really want to know God's will. I really, you know, I'm really seeking God. Um, Lewis uses this great illustration. He says, he goes, a lot of people say they're seekers. You know, I'm seeking God. I'm looking for this. He said, it's kind of like a bunch of little kids, and they're up in an attic, and they're playing cops and robbers. And they're cops, and they're saying, man, if a robber comes, I'm going to give it to him. I can't wait till he shows up. I'm going to tackle him. He said, and then they hear a footstep, and they go like this, and they're, and they're hiding behind things, and they're deathly afraid, and they, don't, and they hope it's not a robber. And he says, oftentimes, that's what we mean by seekers, really. We're, we say we want God, and this isn't just for the non-Christian. This is for us who call ourselves followers of Christ. We oftentimes say, I want God in my life. I want him to have control. 
I want him to be in control of my decisions and my heart and my family and my future and my finances. And then we hear the footstep. And the footstep is something that we didn't intend. We didn't believe would happen. We didn't think, we didn't know that was part of God's plan. And we recoil. And we end up pushing this down a little bit. Following God. That's why Jesus said, if you want to you find your life, I want you to find your life too. It'll be better than you ever imagined. But you've got to lose it for me. If you try to grasp, it's this weird paradox thing. You try to grab it, it won't be there. Again, you aim for God. You get earth thrown in. You get all the things as well. Let me, let me end with this, with this quote by Lewis. And then I want to pray. Lewis writes, Our lifelong longing, that desire, to be reunited with someone in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside. It's no mere neurotic fantasy, but it is the truest index of our real situation. And to be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all our merits and also the healing of that old ache, that longing, that hurt. And he ends with this, the door on which we have been knocking all our lives will one day open at last. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this follower of yours, C.S. Lewis, who was a good picture of one who, who daily sought to submit himself to Christ, who daily allowed himself, his own life, to be lost for Christ's sake in order that a new life might be found. And Father, as we, like it's said of Paul in the New Testament, follow him as he follows Christ, God, we, we are, we're inspired, we're encouraged, we're convicted by these words and these thoughts. And Lord, I thank you that you have made us beings of desire, that you don't call us to kill desire, you call us to redirect it toward the one who made us and who calls us to himself. And God, we admit, we just simply admit, we don't even know what all is involved in that. We know it's a whole project. We know you don't want just a little piece of us. You want the whole show. And you don't want to just make us better people. You want to make us new people. And that requires death of self. And we don't even know what's involved in that. It's scary. We can't even do it on our own. I think of the words of Lewis where he says, what's required to become a follower of Christ is repentance. But bad people can't repent with a good will. Only good people can repent. So we can't do it. <laughs> and so we need you, Father. We need your spirit empowering us even, Lord, as we bend the knee and as we seek you, as we seek to be made new creatures in Christ. God, we're grateful. Thank you for, for these next few weeks. Um, God, even as we go out tonight, would you, um, would you kind of put some new things inside of us as it relates to this, for those of us who, who, who sit in this room and, and say, wow, I've, I've really 
blown it. I, I've had my, my perspective so far off when it comes to the good things in life. I have not seen them as road signs. I've seen them as kind of an end in themselves. And, and that's why I'm never happy. Or, man, I, I've really allowed my heart to become hardened. And I'm battling some cynicism because I have also been disappointed. God, for both of, of those groups this evening, I pray your Holy Spirit's power to soften the hardened heart and God, to, to still and give prudence and, and, and calmness and a stillness to the one who is just rapidly, addictively running to the next thing. And may both of them experience, may they catch that, uh, that burst of longing and see you behind some of those things this week so that we can enjoy them but not let them crush us. We're grateful, Father, for what you're doing in our hearts and our lives. We're grateful for what you're doing in our city and that you have called us to be a part of it. God, may we go out, may we live this gospel truth and have gospel-transformed hearts and lives so that we don't just keep it here in this building or keep it here in our small circles, but that it, it would eke out into the relationships and the spheres of influence that you have placed us in, God. Change the city, change our lives, and we give you all the praise and the glory and the honor for that. And we say, we desire you, God, but help our lack of desire. And we love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We have, uh, our, our prayer team is going to be up here. If you would like prayer, it would be an honor for us to pray with you. This is also kind of our hangout or fellowship time. So it's 8 o'clock. If you have kids, you can go get them, bring them back, and we've got a table in the back as we do every week with like homemade goodies and stuff. So hang out, uh, be, be together. Love you guys. We'll see you this weekend.